Well, welcome today. Glad to have you here. If you are new, my name is Jonathan. I am the lead pastor here, and uh, we're just really glad that you're joining us uh, today. Last week, we began our series in the Gospel of John, and John begun, begins right out of the gate with this incredible statement about who Jesus is. Is and, and I mean, if you were here last week, we, we walked through it sort of line by line and the kind of statements that he makes about Jesus are so bold and so profound and so mind-blowing that it just takes your breath away and causes you to think again about who Jesus is. And, th- and that's how he begins the first part of his introduction. But today we come to the second part of his introduction. And today he moves from this question, who is Jesus, to, th- to just another little question, who is God? And, and of course, this is a huge, huge question. I mean, who is God? All kinds of people ask, uh, have all kinds of different ideas about that. All kinds. I mean, you know, is he a he or is God a she? Or is God a they or, or an it? Or, or is God some sort of cosmic life force that just flows through the rivers and the, and the trees and the mountains? Is, is God sort of a, a watchmaker who, you know, wound the whole thing up and, and, and set it off and now just sits back and watches? Or, or, or is, uh, am I God? Like, I mean, there's just all these different questions or ideas that people have about who God is. But what you think about who God is, how you answer that question is more important than you might think. The, uh, the 20th century writer A.W. Tozer made this incredible, incredibly bold statement. He says this, what comes into your mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, why? How can he say that? Because, you see, it turns out that we become like what we worship. So it's important then to understand and to know what it is that you worship. I mean, he went on to explain it this way. He says this, We tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. So, for example, if you think of God as sort of a cosmic version of a life coach whose primary purpose is to help you maximize your life, then then no matter how much you dress it up as Christianity, it'll just be you looking for God to, to, to fulfill your life in that way, and it will shape everything about who you are. Or if you see God as this sort of great philanthropist of the sky, and, and you just have to ask the right thing so that he just pours money down into your world, then you will see all of life in light of your financial success or lack thereof. Or, if, I mean, if you see God as a, as a racist, homophobic, you know, mad at the world, then not surprisingly, you will become a, a religious bigot who is racist and homophobic and mad at the world. Or, If you think of God as an educated, left-leaning, LGBTQ-affirming progressive, then you are going to see God as a left-leaning, LGBTQ-affirming progressive as well. I mean, and you will live your life in light of that kind of an understanding of who God is. So, clearly, what you think about God matters. Who God is has profound, who God is in your mind has profound implications for who you are. Here's the problem. We usually end up with God 
made in our image. You know, as, as, the, as the saying goes, God made us in him, created us in his image and we've returned the favor and now we're trying to create him in our image. Right? Uh, Scott McKnight, a New Testament, New Testament professor uh, in a seminary, uh, regularly for years taught a class about Jesus. And every year he would begin by giving his students two surveys. The first one asked them about themselves, about their, their likes and their dislikes and their beliefs and so on. And then he would give them a second survey asking the exact same questions about Jesus. And he said 90% of the time the answers were exactly the same. You see, here's how you know if you've created God in your own image. If he, if he hates the kind of stuff that you hate, if he Voted for the person you voted. If, if, if you're a conservative, he's a conservative. If you're a liberal, he's a liberal. If you're passionate about something, then, then, then he's passionate about it. If you are sort of flexible and sort of elastic around sexuality and what, what's acceptable, then it turns out that he is too. And of course, he's tame. Of course, he, he would never ruffle your boat. He would never run against what it is that you think or believe or, or, or hold because he is under your control. I mean, if that's the case, then you've made God in your image. This is a major Achilles heel for us as humans then, isn't it? I mean, how then on earth can we know who God really is? How, how does it not just be all of us making God up in our own image and in our own mind and trying to tell everyone else that's what he's like? And the answer is, the only way that we can really know who God is, is if he reveals himself to us. If he shows us who he really is. Otherwise, we're just guessing. I mean, take my brother, for example. I have a younger brother. I love him like crazy. He's, uh, we grew up in the same family. He's married. He's got four kids. He's got a, a, a small business. He loves skiing. I mean, he's great. But now, if I told you that, and knowing me, if I gave you a piece of paper and a, and, a, and a pencil and said, would you please sketch out a picture of my brother? Or even if I gave you a, a, you know, a, a sketch artist to describe what my brother looks like, if all of you did that and you all submitted that picture to me, the chances of any of you getting it right are slim, aren't they? I mean, maybe one of you might somehow accidentally get it right. But even then, how would we know that you were the right one and everyone else wasn't right unless somebody showed you a picture of my brother? Here's, here it is. This is my brother right there. He's the handsome one on the left. By the way, what you can't tell from this picture, uh, from that toque, is that under that toque is the most beautiful, perfect hair that any man has ever had. Not, not that I'm jealous, at all, but this is my brother. But you wouldn't know it unless uh, that he looked like that unless I showed you a picture. And the only way that we know who God is is if he reveals himself to us, if he appears to us. And in the Old Testament, in the Bible, there's all, all throughout it, God is revealing to himself to us. But there are two stories in particular where he reveals himself in such a powerful, dramatic way that it's hard to, to miss an understanding of who he is. The first of those stories happens at the end of the book of Exodus. 
God has used Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They're in the wilderness, and there he commands them to build a tabernacle. A tabernacle is like a, like a portable temple. And, and they build this beautiful, elaborate tabernacle, and the moment that they're done, they step back, and God comes and appears to the people. Here's, here's what Exodus tells us. The moment it was done, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all in the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. So God comes, and He appears to the people. He reveals Himself, and His glory fills the tabernacle. And he literally comes and he, he, he dwells among the people of Israel. He lives among them. And it was, a, it was a cloud of smoke. You could see him as a cloud of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And the people lived in the presence of the living God. Incredible, incredible story of God coming and dwelling among his people. But, but then there's an even, more, an even more intimate and personal encounter with God where God reveals himself to an individual. And that person is Moses. And, and again, Moses, of course, led the people of Israel out of Egypt. He led them first to a place called Mount Sinai. And on, on that mountain, he went up and, and God began to give him the law. The law, you remember, is the rules and the regulations for how the people of Israel were to relate to one another and how they were to relate to God. And in the midst of this, as God and Moses are going back and forth, at one point, Moses says to God, God, I know we're talking, but I want to see you. I want to see your glory. I mean, I want to, I want to look on your face. God, would you, would you do that for me? Here, here's, 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 the, here's the conversation, how it went between Moses and God. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So God says to Moses, Okay, I'll let you see who I am, but just a glimpse. Just a glimpse, because if you see me in, in all of my glory, It'll kill you. you. You can't take it all in. And notice how he defines his glory. He define, God defines his glory as all of his goodness. He says, all of my goodness will pass before you, and I will allow you just to see a glimpse of it. And so that's what happens. The next day, Moses prepares for this. He comes up on the mountain, and, and here's what happens. It says this, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him. And proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. An important phrase. We're going to come back to that. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers 
on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It's this profound encounter between Moses and God. And in fact, it's such a profound encounter that, that even that glimpse of God's glory causes Moses' face to glow. And, and later it says that he, when he was among the people, his face glowed and, and he had to actually wear a veil for a period of time because of it. But in this moment, God reveals to Moses and ultimately to, to those who read about it who he is. And there's two things that you should note. There's a lot of things, but two that I want to point out. The first is the word Lord. Lord is a title. And it was used by the Jewish people to address God. It was used actually in place of the name that God gave. His name is Yahweh. His personal name is Yahweh. But the Jewish people were so conscious that they didn't take God's name in vain on purpose or even by accident, that instead they, they all through the Old Testament inserted this title, the Lord, wherever it said Yahweh, wherever it said God's name. But you have to understand that, that God, by saying, this is my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, he says, now this is who I am. Because in the ancient world, a person's name wasn't just a, a name that sounded nice that their parents gave them because they're like, oh, I, I like the sound of that. No, no, a person's name defined who they were. And so God says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And then he goes on to describe who he is. And there's all sorts of things he says, but there's one line that I want to point out, and it's this one. It's at the very heart of the definition of who he is. He says this, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this description of God becomes sort of the heartbeat, the, 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 the theme of who God is that winds its way, that threads its way through all of the Old Testament. Hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament, these two words, the steadfast love of God and his faithfulness, are talked about. For example, look at this one, Psalm 89, 1 and 2. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord, of Yahweh, forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Yahweh's love and faithfulness. This is this, this theme that, that, that is used over and over in poetry and in music and in prayers and in simple, clear descriptions of who God is. And it's made up of these two words. In, in Hebrew, the first word, said. We translate as steadfast love. Steadfast love. But, but when it talks about love, it's not this, this sort of sentimental, warm, easy kind of feeling. It's rather this, this deep, unbreakable commitment of love to another person. Right? And there's this, this incredible sense of the graciousness of God that he would make that kind of love towards us, even in light of how fickle we are. This is gracious, unbreakable love, which leads into the second word, faithfulness. And the Hebrew word for faithfulness is the word emet, which literally translated is the word truth. His steadfast love and truth. And we have this idea, we have this word in English, amen, that is connected to this Hebrew word emet, right? And and we say it when we totally agree with what someone says. We we say amen. We say that rings so, so true, so, so reliable, so it's so faithful, right? 
So these words, these words, said and met, steadfast love and faithfulness, they, they run together are all throughout the Bible, which isn't an accident. In fact, it's a, it's a literary technique called the henedeus. I think I got that right. Meaning that each word helps define the other. This word defines this one, and this word defines this one. And together they have this idea of the reliability of God. You can count on God. He will not let you down. I mean, you might fail. You you might, you know, leave when life gets hard, when things are difficult, when it's no longer easy or fun or new, when it's it's boring and uncomfortable. I mean, we, we we leave cities and jobs and, and churches and friendships and marriages, we, we just cut ties and move on. But God is not like that. He is faithful. He is loyal. He will never, ever abandon his people, no matter what. He will always be faithful to them to the bitter end, no matter the cost. There's this deep, steadfast love and faithfulness that is at the very core of God's character. God God comes to Moses on that day and he passes before Moses and he gives him a glimpse of who he is. And he says, he says, this is me. This is what I am all about. And Moses gets this incredible revelation of who God is. It's the second story of the Old Testament that is just this incredible revelation of who, of who God is. God reveals who he is. It's like, it's like seeing a picture of him. It's like me showing you a picture of my brother. You're like, oh, oh, I get it. But it turns out that these stories from the Old Testament that reveal who, who God is, these incredible encounters, these dramatic encounters with God are nothing compared to what God is going to do next. They pale in comparison to how God is going to reveal himself next. It's a little bit like uh, this summer we got together with uh, uh, friends of ours. They'd just come back from Disneyland and we got talking about all the rides and which rides are the best. And we all know the best ride in Disneyland, bar none, is Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Naturally, I mean, that is the best ride. But, But then we got talking about some of the other rides and I got talking about the Star Wars ride. We'd been there about eight or ten years ago with our family, I was describing the Star Wars ride and it it tips this way and it does this and it was so good and they kind of gave me a funny look. I said, what? It's a great ride. And they said, you know there's a new Star Wars ride. I said, oh yeah, I, I forgot. Is it good? Is it good? Are you kidding me? It pales in comparison. The, the, the old one, and they'd been on the old one, they said the old one pales in comparison to the new ride. And they went to describe how it was. And it was like, whoa, dude, that's amazing. I mean, that, that's incredible. The, the first one was good. This one is better. If I ever go back to Disneyland, it will be the second ride that I go on right after Pirates of the Caribbean because that's the best ride in all of Disneyland. What my friends did for me there, that that conversation, that's what John is now going to do in the opening verses of this gospel that he writes. He he is going to to hearken back. He's going to look back to these incredible encounters where God revealed himself in the Old Testament. He's going to say, that was amazing. But it is nothing compared to what God has done now. So here's, here's, 
Here's what he's going to tell us. And by the way, this is, this is why there's so much value in, in knowing the Old Testament. This is why we encourage you to read through the Bible once, like through the whole Bible. Some of us are doing it this year. If you're one of those people, let me encourage you, keep going. I mean, we're getting near to the finish line. But if you haven't been reading through the Bible, if you're not reading it at all, I just want to encourage you. Fall is such a good time. Just build a rhythm into your world. Five minutes a day somewhere where you say, I'm just going to read part of the Bible and allow it to sink in and ask God what it says in my life. Just, just keep doing it. But, but the background, the, the, to know that story is so helpful to understand what John is going to say now. Here's, here's what he writes. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. He says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Here's, here's what John says. He says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, last week we talked about that, the word, word, right? It's the word logos. It means the universal cosmic force. And John says the universal cosmic force, the force behind everything, is a person. And that person came and took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And when he says he dwelt among us, literally that term is he translated or could be translated, he tabernacled among us. You see, what John does now is he, he goes back to that story from Exodus where God literally came and dwelt in the presence of his people. He says, that's what God did now. Then he appeared in smoke and in fire. Now he appears in the flesh. I mean, imagine, imagine for a moment that it's a beautiful summer night and you're out under the stars somewhere in the park or in, in, in the wilderness somewhere. Maybe you're camping and there's beautiful trees around and, and there's these stars in the sky and you build this fire, a big fire, and, and it's just so beautiful. And as you sit back, there's this kind of peace that settles over you and and as you, are, as you are sitting there, you're just taking it all in and, and you just kind of sense the presence of God. Think of his goodness and his grace in your life and, and his care for you. And you look at the beauty of creation and, and you look at the fire and you just have this sense that God is with you. And, and you pray a little bit and, and maybe, you, maybe you hum a worship song. And, and it's just this almost magical moment of being in, in God's presence. But then imagine in that moment that all of a sudden in the midst of that incredible crackling bonfire, a human being materializes and steps out of the fire and comes and sits down beside you. And it's not an angel. In fact, in a moment, in a blink of an eye, you know in your heart of hearts that it is God himself who has come. But now, now you're in the very presence of God and you feel his care and his love and his, this profound sense of peace and this safety. And, and, but you're also in this awe of who he is. But he's sitting right here. And you can talk to him. And he talks right back to you. And you can, you can eat together and, and you, can, you can take it all in together. And, and you have these conversations and, and, 
I mean, it would blow your mind, wouldn't it? I mean, the fire and, and, and all that was so beautiful and precious, but nothing compared to the idea that God himself would sit beside you like a friend and talk to you. That's what John says happened here, that God no longer appeared in a fire and smoke, as amazing as it was, but now he came in the flesh. He dwelt among his people. It's like, it's like me showing you a picture of my brother. You say, oh, I get it. Or me, or you, I wouldn't do this to you. He, he's a good guy. But, but you inviting him to come and live in your home for three years, right? I mean, you would get to know him in a totally different way. And John says, that's what God does. He comes in the flesh so that you can know him like that. And then, and then he doesn't stop there. Now he, he reaches back again into the, these stories from Exodus. And, and now this is what he says next about Jesus. He says, we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father. Remember, Moses begged to see the glory of God. He, he, he longed to see it. And God said, I'll just give you a glimpse because you can't handle more than a glimpse. <clears throat> and John says, now in Jesus, we've seen the full glory of God. Now, now it has all been revealed to us. And remember, his glory is his goodness. And, and, and in, in Jesus, we saw the goodness of God in the way that he lived his life, in the things that he said, in, in, in the way that he cared for people, how he stood up for righteousness and justice, in, in his transfiguration, in the miracles that he did, in his death on the cross for us, and in his resurrection. His glory everywhere. We've seen it all in the fullness of what it is. What Moses saw was amazing, but it was nothing, nothing compared to what John saw. He says, we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father. And then, and then the next line he says is this, that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Now those words, grace and truth, they're the Greek translation you remember the new testament is written in greek the old testament is written in hebrew those words grace and truth are the greek translations of the hebrew words has said and emet steadfast love and faithfulness now when we think of these words when we read these words often we think that what john is saying now is that jesus lived this perfectly balanced life of of love and kindness and gentleness uh, balanced perfectly with courage and boldness and truth as he interacted with people and frankly he did live that way you can see it over and over and over again in all of the accounts of jesus life but that's not the point that john is making here what john is saying here is at the very essence of God's nature, his abounding love and faithfulness. The, the, this theme that has threaded its way hundreds of times through the Old Testament, he says, if you want to see it in all of its fullness, the place to see it embodied is right here in Jesus. He is full of grace and truth. And remember, that grace and truth, that, 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 that steadfast love and faithfulness is all about the loyalty of God, that his love for us will never fail no matter how much we screw up. You know, you and I, I mean, we fail, don't we? You and I, we all have decisions that, that we wish we could take back, regrets that we have. We, I mean, we, we all have brokenness and, and, and hurts in our life that we never thought we'd have. We all have 
loss and, and, and pain that we, we never thought we would have to endure in the midst of it. And, and we have all experienced this loss and this failure in our lives. But, but what John says here about Jesus, about, about the one that they saw in the flesh, is that he would never, he, he will never, no matter what happens, no matter how bad you, you mess up, his love for you will never fail. Your love, his love for you will never go away. It will never be diminished. It's in his very nature. He is full of grace and truth. His very nature is steadfast love and faithfulness. In fact, the Apostle Paul, writing to his protege Timothy, he reminds him of this. He says this at one point. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He can't help but be Faithful. He, he can't help but this gracious love, this, this steadfast faithfulness for us. Jesus takes all of the things, all of the brokenness and the regrets and the, and, and the failures in our lives, and he absorbs them in his death on the cross. And he breaks their power over us. And he says, I will walk with you as we do, you know, as you follow me in this life. And then... And then John continues. This is what he says. Uh, then, then this is what he says about, about Jesus. He says this. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, he's, his mind is back to the story of Moses on the mountain where he received the law from God. Now you remember if you were here for our series on Leviticus this summer. That the laws, the, the rules of the regulations that God set out for the people of Israel. So they would know how to relate to one another. And so they would know how to relate to him. And they were good. They, they were boundaries. And, and, and they taught them because they'd lived in slavery for 400 years. They taught them how to live in relationship to one another. The law that God gave through Moses was grace to the people of Israel. It was his care and his love for them. And now what John says is on, on that grace in Jesus has come an even greater grace. Grace upon grace. If that revealed to the Israelites God's values and what he loved and how to be in relationship with him, he says, now in Jesus, we see the full picture of how God relates to us. A greater way, a better way for him and us to be in relationship to one another. It's the full revelation of who he is. And then he ends by saying this. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You know, Moses was told that he would die if he saw God. No one could see God and live, at least not in that, in that form that God was, uh, in that sort of spiritual form. But now we're able to do what Moses only dreamed of. Now we are able to do the thing that he longed for. Now, John says, we can stare intently into the very face of God. Who is God? What, what is he like? If you want to know who he is and what he's like, you just look at Jesus. That's who he is. That's what he's like. You know, here's the interesting thing about this. When, when God chose to come in the flesh, to, to, to become a human and, and to live in a particular place and time, he made himself, in a sense, verifiable, right? I mean, 
Obviously, you can't prove God, but, but he made it possible for us to test and to study and to think about and to put to test who he was. Because you see, everyone else, all the other faiths, all the other people who make things up about who God is in their head, it's all like out there. I, I think God's like this. I think he's like that. But no one can test to see if it's true or not true. But God, when he took on flesh, in a sense, he invited us. He said, come, test to see what is true. Which means that over the last 2,000 years, those kinds of questions have been asked. They've been prodded and, and poked and by, by scientists, by archaeologists and historians and literary critics and theologians. And they've asked some of the hardest questions. And they put some of the, the boldest, most rigorous tests to the claims and to, the, to the, the, the history of Jesus. And it turns out that over 2,000 years, all of those questions continue to be answered, continue to be proven. And what God is saying is not that you can prove his existence or not, but rather that he comes and says, I made myself as available. I revealed myself as much as possible to you so that you can know that I am who I say I am. You know, Jesus is the fullest, most complete picture of God and what he's like. And the early Christians can believe this completely. In fact, in the early, among the early Christians, before you could be baptized, when, when you went to be baptized, you had to declare this creed, these words before you were baptized. Three words, Jesus is Lord. People died over this statement. People were thrown to the lions. They were burned at the stake because of it. Why? Why this statement? Well, here's why. Because the word Lord, which is kurios in Greek, also applied to Caesar. So to say that Jesus was Lord was tantamount to treason. But, but more importantly than that, the word kyrios, the Greek word Lord, was used to translate the Hebrew word Lord, which was the word for Yahweh. And most of the early Christians were Jewish, which meant that when they got baptized, that they were saying that Jesus was none other than Yahweh in the flesh, God himself among us. Now, I don't know about you, but often when, when I read the New Testament, I think of God the Father as sort of being the equivalent to Yahweh in the Old Testament. And Jesus is kind of, sometimes it feels like he's like the new, the, new, the new one on the scene, right? I mean, the, you know, Yahweh, God, the Father, were sort of the, the old grumpy, you know, Old Testament kind of mean. And, and Jesus was like this young, you know, new radical who comes on the scene and says, you know, God, let's, Father, let's, let, let's stop killing everyone. Instead, let's, let's do grace and peace and, and love and tolerance. And how about I die for them instead? We kind of get that sense sometimes, don't we? But, but that's not at all what John is saying here. You know what John is saying here? John is saying that Jesus, the one who lived before them, was the exact same one who was on the mountain with Moses. Jesus is Yahweh. If you want to know who God is, if you want to understand what he is like, the place to look is at Jesus. He is the full, complete revelation of who God is. He, he is the one to whom we will fully see who, what God is all about. Which means that as we go through this series on the Gospel of John, be careful that you don't shape Jesus into your image. When Jesus says things that catch you off guard, that, that strike you as not really being right, don't just 
Don't, don't, don't just sort of say, well, that can't be, and continue to shape him in the image that you want, but allow him to press you. Allow him to challenge you. Allow him to push you outside of your comfort zone so that you get a full, complete revelation of who God is. Because how you understand God profoundly affects how you live your life. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Well, God, we come to you this day again. And God, we thank you that, that you revealed yourself to us. I mean, if you didn't, how on earth would we know? If you didn't, God, we'd just be guessing. How good of you, how gracious of you. And God, what a good God you are. A God of steadfast love and faithfulness, of, of grace and truth. Grace upon grace. Oh God, we bless you for sending Jesus. We thank you for sending him in the flesh so that we could know you fully, so we could look upon your glory in all of its fullness. God, forgive us for where we try to shape you into our image. God, forgive us for where we tame you and try to control you and try to, try to fit you in our neat little box so that you fit the way that we think it should be rather than us submitting ourselves fully to the full revelation of who you are. God, open our hearts, open our minds. Give us eyes to see so that we live in light of who you truly are. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.